They say there are two kinds of people in the world, rule keepers and rule breakers. If the scale was one to 10, one being extreme rule keeper and 10 being extreme rule breaker, where would you peg yourself? Welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but Rather Uncertain. Welcome back. It's season two, and I'm super excited. I've taken a break for what turned out to be two months, but it's been a really good thing for me. During that time, I was in Botswana for a couple days, in America for three weeks, and then we had our middle son, Jeremiah, and his family here in Durban for 10 days. So it has been an eventful time for me. But in the midst of all of that, I've been trying to envision where this podcast is headed in this next season. I plan to continue to share my strange and bizarre thoughts and questions with you, as I have over the past season, but I also hope to have a regular stream of guests that share their stories of transformation and change in their lives. I really believe in the power of story, and so I'm really keen to introduce you to some of my friends who have journeyed through questions and doubt and come out on the other side in a better place than when they started. Back in the 1980s, there was a Christian artist by the name of Steve Taylor. He was kind of a pop slash punk artist. He wrote a song that I really liked called Whatever Happened to Sin. I mean, I loved that song when it came out. And so I went back the other day to read the lyrics and I found I didn't like it nearly as much now. In fact, I really didn't like it at all. The basic premise of the song is, why are we Christians so nice? Why don't we just call people out publicly more often? Why don't we speak out against sin in our world? Well, maybe you completely agree with that, that nobody talks about sin anymore and it's a problem and I guess I get it. And maybe it's even true. For those of you that know me well, you know that I live inside my head a lot. You can't imagine the strange ideas and conversations that go on there. The conversation I've been having with myself lately is this. So what is sin? How do I define it? How do I know when I've done it? Are there some sins that are worse than other sins? Is sin about my actions or about my attitude? See, the Bible talks a lot about sin. I mean, the word appears over 300 times. So I guess if I can avoid it, it would be a good thing. But I need to know exactly what it is. So I've been out asking various people the question, how do you define sin? And I've gotten a myriad of answers. It's going against God. It's missing the mark. It's living outside what God intends for us. It's anything short of perfection. It's believing something about ourselves that is different than what God believes about us. It's a disease that needs to be healed. 
It's the avenue in which we discover the unconditional love of God. There have been as many answers as there have been people that I've asked. But clearly when you read the Bible, there is a thing called sin. I mean, even Jesus spoke about it pretty regularly. There is something that we do or say or think that God defines as sin, and it's not a good thing. And we clearly need to avoid it, if at all possible. Jewish people had the law. Now that seems pretty simple. If you break the law, you sin. It started with the Ten Commandments. We read the story in Exodus where Moses went up Mount Sinai and met with God and God wrote um, the Ten Commandments on stone tablets and Moses brought them back down to the people. Then over the next 40 years or so, God gave more and more law. And that seems pretty clear, right? Well, actually, not really. Take the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, what are other gods, really? I mean, how can I have other gods if there really is only one God anyway? So maybe he's talking about like a state of mind. So if that's true, could my car be a God? Could my job be a God? And then at what point is it before God. When do I cross that line? I mean, when does the fact that I really like my car become sin? Or what about that commandment to honor your father and mother? That's number five. So is that in every situation? Do I honor my father even if he's physically abusing my mother? Or what about the commandment that says to keep the Sabbath day holy? By the time of Jesus, there were like 600 rules just to define the commandment about the Sabbath because it really wasn't that clear. Then Jesus comes along and he actually makes things a little more confusing, at least for me. In Matthew 5, we have what has come to be called the Sermon on the Mount. It's not really one sermon that Jesus preached, but rather a collection of things that Jesus had said. So in this collection, Matthew quotes Jesus as saying that if we are angry with someone, we are subject to the same judgment as the person who murders. But then we've all heard Jesus' brother's James' statement when he says, be angry, but don't sin. So obviously there's a line I cross when I'm angry that's before sin and after sin, but what is it? Or another time Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that even if you lust after a woman, you have already committed adultery. Wow, that's heavy. But even then, he doesn't really define at what point I'm lusting. And he uses it in the context of a married woman when he talks about adultery. So does it hold true to single women as well? Or is it just men? I mean, can women commit this sin as well? I remember 
having the lust conversation with my youth pastor many, many years ago, because every good Christian teenage boy had the conversation with his youth leader at some point. And he told me that I should stay so far back from the line that there's never a possibility that I cross it. He said, if you never walk along the edge of the cliff, you will never accidentally fall in. That's probably good advice, but everything in my personality rebels against that. I want to break the rules. I want to go to the edge and look over. I mean, what fun is it to get close to the edge of the cliff and then stay 20 feet back? And all you rule breakers out there know exactly what I'm talking about. I had a long conversation with a friend the other day who feels like Jesus made the point pretty clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. Basically, everything we do is missing the mark. Everything we do is sin, which is why we need God's grace. We had a long conversation about the verse at the end of Matthew 5, where Jesus said, Be perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. My friend felt like missing the mark is anything short of perfection, which we are never able to attain, so we need God's grace. Our conversation was really helpful, but also really puzzling to me. See, I wouldn't be very motivated by a father who I could never please, whose standard I could never meet. And even if he shows me grace, I would feel like he was always disappointed with me and I could never, ever please him. But over and over, I read of a God that delights in his children, not a God who is disappointed because I don't measure up. So I spent some time researching the verse. The first thing that I noticed is that it actually comes at the end of a section about loving your enemies, not about general behavior. Let me me read you this passage from Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 43. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. So given the fact that this is at the end of this particular passage, Jesus could be saying that we are to love perfectly as the Father loves perfectly. It lines up beautifully with the statement that John records when Jesus told his disciples A new commandment I give you, love each other as I have loved you. That seems pretty consistent. But we can also take a look at the word that we translate as perfect. 
It's translated that way in most English versions of the Bible, but it could also be translated as complete or whole rather than perfect. What if be perfect is not a general statement about behavior, but rather saying, let your love be complete as the Father's love is complete. There's a big possibility that Jesus isn't making a general statement about sin or what missing the mark is, but actually speaking about how we treat each other. But even if all that is true, it's not to say that Jesus doesn't make a big deal about sin, because he does. Matthew also quotes him as saying, If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Or if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, obviously, he's speaking metaphorically. Or at least I hope he is speaking metaphorically. But he wants us to know that sin, whatever it is, is a big deal. Back in season one, we spoke about forgiveness and the fact that God is actually radically forgiving. Your sin is forgiven. Your past sin, your present sin, your future sin, the cross covers all of it. So if that's true, which I really believe it is, then why does sin even really matter? If everything I do is basically sinful, but sin is already forgiven, why should I even worry about it at all? The Apostle Paul had exactly the same problem. Even though he saw the world through the eyes of a rule keeper, he knew that rule keeping didn't solve the problem. And so he tells us, don't worry about the rule keeping because there's grace. Then he asked the question, should I keep on sinning so that grace can flourish? And he responds with, no, absolutely not. Rather, he says, you were forgiven, so live like it. I love that idea. You are already forgiven, so now live like it. I think I would say it this way. Let grace transform you. Transform you into what? Into the kind of person that you've always wanted to be. Into the kind of father or mother or co-worker or pastor or friend that you've always wanted to be. You are already forgiven. Now live like it. And let God's grace that has already been given, let it transform you into who God has created you to be. I heard something a little while ago that was incredibly helpful for me around this idea of transformation. And we'll get back to the sin thing in just a minute. Hang with me. It was Richard Rohr who said it on a podcast, so I want to be sure to give him credit for this. But he talks about moving from I to we. Instead of living my life in I, not E-Y-E, but capital I, we need to live our life in we. I love that concept. Can you imagine the transformation that would take place if everybody lived their lives in the we 
instead of the I. Every parent, every politician, every pastor, every teacher, every human being lived as we instead of I. When I was younger, people told me that I should live my life with a kind of hierarchy. God first, then my family, then others, and then me. And I guess that makes sense, uh, but maybe there's a better way to think about it instead of in hierarchical terms, but rather in the we. God, my family, my community, myself, all living as we, without a pecking order, without some kind of hierarchy. That we is perfectly modeled in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living as one, without hierarchy, without dominance, just perfect oneness, just perfect we. Recently, I was in Holland, Michigan for a few weeks where my mom lives. And we had some great conversations around all sorts of topics. Even at 92, her mind is really sharp and her heart is incredibly open. She's not afraid of new ideas or of change. So, of course, some of our conversation revolved around the ideas that I've put forward on this podcast. But in one conversation, we were talking about some of the great Christian leaders of the 60s and 70s and the amazing work that they did. Men and women who are willing to forsake everything for the mission to which God had called them. But we also could ignore the price that some of them paid in terms of their families, some whose marriages fell apart, some whose children really struggled in their faith. As I reflected on our conversation and on this idea of I and we, I realized that maybe it was that hierarchy, that drive to put God first, that made us feel like we had to be willing to forsake even our families. And because of that, it made our families feel like they were second place because they were. Nobody wants to feel like second place. Your wife doesn't, your husband doesn't, and especially your young children don't. They don't get anything about call or mission. They just want to feel like they are number one in daddy's eyes. If we abandon the idea of hierarchy and replace it with we, I wonder if that would have the potential to change everything. Yes, I can put my wife and my children and my relationship to God and the mission and even my own health on an equal level because it's all in the we. There doesn't have to be hierarchy. Okay, now you may wonder what all that has to do with sin. Well, here's what I've been living in for the past few weeks. What if sin is when I live in I rather than we? 
What if that's what Jesus was talking about when he said, let your love be complete as the Father in heavens is complete? What if he was pointing to the Trinity and to the completeness of we? We've taken this hierarchy model and we've adopted into most areas of society. We speak of a hierarchy in marriage. The husband is the head and then the wife, and then the children. What if we saw our families as we? I've heard the argument for the hierarchy model of family that somebody has to be in charge, right? I mean, what if the husband and wife disagree on something, then who makes the final call? I would say we do. We find a third option. And certainly in my experience, the third option, the we option is always better. We use the hierarchy in the workplace with position and title. What if a person in your workplace saw their role in terms of we? And what if those, quote, on the bottom, unquote, felt like this was a we organization rather than feeling like they were on the bottom of some kind of pecking order? What if our politicians were more concerned with we than their own reelection or the party line? Imagine what a country could look like. And what if every pastor abandoned the hierarchy model, the authority model for we. What would that do for our churches? And what if every person that claimed to be a Christian would look at every person they come into contact with as we, no matter the race, or the privilege, or the sexual orientation, or the beliefs? What if we saw the world and treated the world as we? What kind of transformation would we see? So if you ask me what sin is, I would say it's when we live in the I. When the decisions that I make or the attitudes that I have all center around I. So let me encourage us to move from the sin of I to the completeness of we. I hope this idea messes with your head a bit like it has with mine. I hope that you begin to see everything you do in terms of I and we. I hope that however you feel about Christianity or the Bible or religion in general, you would be willing to be transformed as you move from I to we. When we do that, I think we will really change the world. I am super excited about our next episode. When I was in the States, I sat down with my oldest son, Joshua, and we had the most amazing conversation about his spiritual journey growing up as a missionary kid in South Africa, and I can't wait to share that with you. 
Until then, if you missed season one, it's all still there. You can go back anytime. If you happen to be listening on iTunes, please scroll down to the bottom of the page and rate and review this podcast. It really goes a long way in helping getting the word out. So until next time, figure out what it means to live in the weeds. Shalom.